1990, the film that would become my favourite film of all time was released. It was called Metropolitan. And I'm not sure why I love it so much, because it's about a slice of life that I really have no connection with, and that's the debutante world of the Upper East Side of New York City. It was directed by Whit Stillman, who after that directed three more films, Barcelona, The Last Days of Disco, and Damsels in Distress. All of them experienced modest success at the box office, but now he's back with a big commercial and critical success called Love and Friendship, which is based on the Jane Austen novella Lady Susan. Whit Stillman was my guest on Overnights. Good morning. Going back to your first film, Metropolitan, you obviously have an interest in Jane Austen. What is it about her? Well, um, she's my favourite author, and she's the, the author, I mean, the many authors one, one loves, but she's the one that um, I and I think a lot of other people can identify entirely with her point of view and also with her sort of cool reason and, 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 and sort of sense of comedy. Has anyone ever attempted a film, Lady Susan, before? Are you the first person to have a go at this film, at this story? Well, when I was when I was starting, actually, I was quite concerned because there was another group that was that was thinking of doing it. And um, fortunately, um, after a certain time, I stopped hearing about that project. And because I know how bad it is having a, a competing project, it happened to us with Last Days of Disco, and it's not a good experience. So, what else was being made at the time that you were making Last Days of Disco? Um, there's a film called Fifty Four. It's a perfectly good film, but um, I think in the in the heads of both um, companies, it was a rivalry, and in the heads of the press, it was a rivalry. And so there's a lot of pressure on us to be the film that comes out first. And it's better to be able to take your time with casting and editing and things like that, and not have to feel that you have to get a film out before another film. In the end, though, those were two very very different films. Fifty Four was about Studio Fifty Four, Last Days of Disco might have been a, a little bit about disco, but it was really, again, about the way that young people interact. Yes, but it's a question of how things are perceived in the marketplace. Mm. I, I like the idea of, of their film because I said, well, um, I don't want to do Studio 54. I don't want to do sort of the docudrama. Um, I want to do this other comedy. And at, at some point we thought of changing the title of the Last Days of Disco to use the old film title, History Has Made It Night. <laughs> You did change the name, though, for this film. In a way, it wasn't Lady Susan. You called it uh, Love and Friendship. And that, I suppose, riffs on Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility. Yes. Where did you get that from? Where did you get the idea from? Why did you decide that that was the best thing to do for this film? Well, it was the first change uh, we made, and it sort of helped us make the project our own. Lady Susan is not a title um, that Jane Austen used. It was put on the book when it was published by her nephew over... 50 years after she died, and she wouldn't have called it Lady Susan because Northanger Abbey at that point, um, when, when she died, was called Susan. And um, I thought that Love and Friendship, which was an Austin title, she used it for a, a juvenile short story, was, was more Austinian and broader and took the story away from just being about one character because we wanted it to be about other characters. Okay. She was one of the most famous writers of the 19th century, still extraordinarily popular today, partly, I'm sure, because of the TV and film versions of her work. How do you even begin to try and write in her style, in her voice, either when you're writing a novel based on this film or writing the dialogue, the screenplay for the film itself? 
there's this perception that she's been adapted so often for cinema, et cetera, et cetera. But in fact, that really started um, and it was concentrated in the period of 1995 yeah. to 1998. And there were a huge number of important adaptations for work then. And since then, um, it's, it's, it's less so. And, and before then, there had been almost nothing except for the Greer Garson, Laurence Olivier, uh, Pride and Prejudice from the 1940s. So it's sort of a new thing, um, this idea of, of a Jane Austen adaptation craze. In, in my case, what I think really helped our project was that this seemed like such an improbable um, piece to adapt. It's, it's quite slight, and it's quite unfinished in the Jane Austen sense. She left it in a state that, that she would have changed because her two other epistolary novels, um, she greatly changed as, as, as Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice. And so I thought that what this needed was time. So um, I never accepted a contract to do this under a deadline. I had other paying jobs, uh, script assignments, and this is just what I'd get to when it was my own time, and and we took time on it. So I immersed myself in the text, and over over years, um, I think I became comfortable in writing in, in her in her mode. Although quite consciously, some things are different. Um, there's a lot of sort of sketch comedy that's more contemporary in spirit um, in the film because a lot of the characters weren't fully described in her letter, so we had to have scenes for them that were independent of what she wrote. But just in the dialogue, for example, how do you know that you are writing in the style of, of how it was or would have been at the time, or does that not really matter? You're, really, you're writing for a contemporary audience. You're not writing for something 200 years ago. No, but we really tr tried to do that, and um, I think that a, a lot of it is just working with her material over many years until it sort of becomes her own. And some of the funniest lines I assumed were just directly out of her book, but then I went back to check, and the only difference really was we compressed those lines. So um, her line, um, "It's pity you married Mr. Johnson, um, too old uh, to be governable, too young to die." <laughs> so that those words are in her text, but she also had sort of two other things for each of those qualities. So there's sort of compression going on in the film. Yeah. Is the most important theme in the story the same as the main theme in Pride and Prejudice, and that is the importance of marriage for a woman to secure her future? Yes. I mean, it is the economic challenge of, of, of women and, and to a certain extent men in that period when um, there were fewer avenues to, to, to earn money. So how would you like people to react to Lady Susan? Do you see her as this mercenary figure or is she someone that we should react very kindly to because she sees the problem her daughter is in, she sees the problem that she herself is in after her husband is gone and she needs to make sure that she and her daughter are okay? Well, I think it's hard to sort of apply moralistic standards uh, to Lady Susan. In these film stories, I like to enjoy scoundrel characters, but at the same time, being aware that they're scoundrels and not giving in at all to all their lies and deception. So the inspiration for me was a little bit uh, the film comedy, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, because we know they're scoundrels, but we enjoy seeing their operations. So then is it easier to write an adaptation of, say, an Austen novel and do it as Austen would do it, or an adaptation and put it in modern day, like perhaps you did with Metropolitan? Well, I prefer doing Jane Austen authentically period. 
I'm very interested in the period. I think it's a very attractive period. The, in this case, it's earlier than most of the Jane Austen. That is Regency. Uh, this is Georgian. And I think the end of the 18th century is a, a fascinating time and a time we're very close to in our point of view in, in many ways. So what is it about Jane Austen's time that is so appealing to you? There, there's so many attractive qualities uh, of the period that can be represented on screen. So um, the costumes, the architecture, uh, the carriages, um, there's sort of a visual richness um, that, that's very appealing. I can imagine, though, as a filmmaker, they present an extraordinary number of problems, though, in order to get all that done. I actually found it harder doing um, disco period than doing um, Jane Austen period. Really? Uh, we were shooting in and, ar- in and around Dublin, and one of the reasons we, we chose there, one of the many reasons, is that it's perfectly set up to do period films. It's kind of the, the, the established backlot for, for 18th century and for, for the Jane Austen period. Many of the films have been done there. And so you have crews that are very expert in costumes and uh, decoration, and you have the beautiful architecture from the, the sort of the wealthy Anglo-Irish uh, great houses constructed in that time. And um, you know, one thing you find when you're making period films, if a country was very wealthy in one period and less wealthy afterwards, generally the things are preserved. If, if the wealth keeps on rolling, the past is destroyed. And so in the great London metropolis, a great deal of the 18th century aspect has, has, has disappeared. And, and you know, to, to find these period lo- locations, un- unfortunately, you still have to go to a country that had a long stretch of, 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 of not being that prosperous, which is why these things, I think, are preserved in, in Ireland, where the, the great wealth is, is, is something recent. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Whit Stillman is our guest, director of Love and Friendship, which is in cinemas now. What about then the last days of disco? Why was it so difficult to make a film that was only set in the fairly recent past? Well, one thing um, I was good about Love and Friendship is that objectively it's a period that we can all study. So everyone in the crew can have their own expertise, their knowledge, their books, their references. In the case of the other films I made, it was a little bit explaining to young crew members how we wanted people to be represented from 1981 or how I wanted people to be represented from the milieu of the uh, debutante parties in Metropolitan when they sort of hadn't been there and didn't know this group of people. So it was sort of too much in my head as, as from the crew's point of view. And um, the, the collaboration was, was more awkward. Um, we had a, a wonderful costume designer on Metropolitan who had been to debutante parties in her hometown of Chattanooga, Tennessee. And to get the white dresses for one of the balls, she had all her friends send, send up their debutante dresses to her because we had no real budget for, for wardrobe in Metropolitan. So uh, that was great, having her involved. But there weren't that many people sort of familiar with debutante parties uh, working on Metropolitan. I want to get to the budget in just a moment, but one of the things we find out about the people or the, the time and the place in Metropolitan, which is made in 1990, or at least it's released in 1990, is that it's set not so long ago. When was it set? Well, that's a good question. That's a very good question. Um, we were shooting it um, in the winter of 88, 89, but I want to suggest a former time. My own experience um, had been in 1969 when things really were changing already, but I remember sort of getting a glimpse of it in, in my sister's generation two or three years before. So for me, sort of psychologically, a lot of it was um, end of the 60s, but before the Woodstock um, craziness started. 
And um, but every sort of decade of people sort of familiar with those times thinks it's their time. So there are people who think it's as far back as the 1950s in its ethos, and other people think it's just you know from that period that we were shooting it in, which is the end of the 80s. Because one of the characters does talk about everything that's going on at the moment, as if it is something like 1968 and all the tragic events of 1968. Yeah, yeah, I think there's a little bit of that Vietnam War feeling. And also we talk about uh, what, what kind of blows it is um, we talk about Louis Bunuel's uh, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. <laughs> so my, my film friends in Madrid said they were shocked at that because they were assuming it was sort of much earlier in time. And then they talk about a 19, early 70s film. So mm. that took them out of the movie. I was astonished to read that the budget for Metropolitan was only $225,000. Is that right? That can't possibly be right. Well, we didn't even have that much in investment. Fortunately, um, someone started, you know, buying, you know, offering to buy the film and paying an escrow um, amount. I mean, I was actually taking, let us take it out of escrow so we could pay the lab bill. So we only really raised two hundred ten thousand, but um, I, I think the real cost was two twenty five, two thirty. So how did you afford it? Given that you presumably had to pay the actors, you had to. Uh, have a costume budget, although, as you mentioned, that uh, maybe uh, the, you know, the, some of the costumes were sent from somewhere else. How did you afford that film? Well, I think in these films, everyone works um, on deferment. And if you add in the deferments later, um, the cost of the film would have come up to 300000 So everyone, everyone got that. The, the investors did really well, which helped me with this film, because at a certain point we had a half a million dollar gap in our budget. And um, my, my best friends uh, from... The Metropolitan Investment, who'd done really well, rallied the troops, and friends came in. Uh, about ten friends came in with the investment, and now they're they're really doing well with, with <laughs> this film too. So I'm glad the two films yeah. I have friend investors in have turned out to be profitable. It's certainly a case of love and friendship in that case. So have you been surprised yes. with the um, the critical and commercial success of Love and Friendship? I've been absolutely thrilled and delighted with it. I mean, it's not a Cinderella story because I'm pretty old for Cinderella. Um, and we sort of had that experience also with, with Metropolitan, a film that kind of takes off on its own and has its own life. Yeah. And you don't have to sort of push it like a string. And uh, so it's, it's a great feeling. Um, I think I can have perspective on it, though, having uh, had so many um, bad periods and long gaps between films and things like that. You were nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay for Metropolitan. You lost out to Bruce Joel Rubin, who wrote Ghost. Did you go to the Oscars? Did you go with an expectation that you might win? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I hadn't prepared anything to say, so I guess I didn't think I'd win. It was really fun going to the Oscars. I was sort of hoisted by my own petard because I'd always hated the Oscars and very vociferously telling everyone how, how... how awful I thought they were and how always wrong and all that kind of thing. But then you get to go yourself and say, okay, this is actually fun to go. I think for me the most exciting thing was I was about to take my, my daughter to school and I had my coat on and I was watching the announcements of the nominations and that, that was the great moment. You talk about how Metropolitan lives on. Recently there was a bit of a reunion for the cast in Vanity Fair magazine. Why do you think it has resonated for so long for so many people? I don't know. Maybe because it was always a period film, it still uh, lasts. Maybe you put a lot of heart into the first project you make and, and people like that. It's a crossroads film. It's about people sort of forming their identities and their own, their own groups, their own associations. And uh, 
I'm showing it again to tonight in a double feature with Love and Friendship up in uh, up in Hudson Valley. So uh, it, it, it it keeps going. Is it also because, certainly from in my opinion, the dialogue is so great, and that's a tribute to you that even to this day I find myself using passages of dialogue from that film, or when talking to members of my family we will use dialogue from the film in a certain situation. There's just such a resonance to how the film was written. Oh, that's really great to hear. That's really great to hear. I had a day job then, and I could only work on the Metropolitan script uh, nights, weekends, and um, I think that helps sort of refine a script. It was the same experience I had with uh, Love and Friendship, and I think I'll do it more often, where you don't put yourself against the clock, where a producer wants you to turn in a script in, you know, six weeks or six months. Yeah. And, and let let a script find its, its its natural contour. Did you think that the success of Metropolitan would make it easier to get your next film made? Well, it did get make it easier because the um, the next two films were financed by uh, Castle Rock. It was a one stop sh- shop, and so that was much easier. But I'm not sure that it le- leads to the best films, the easiest um, financing process. I sort of like the roundabout way we we did Metropolitan and Love and Friendship. And what about Damsels in Distress then? I mean, Damsels in Distress is my particular favorite film. Uh, it brought me back from the dead as a film director, and it was just a delightful experience. And, and, and I, I, I love that whole, that whole scene we, we did. I know it struggled <laughs> and didn't get full, full release in Australia, but um, sometimes it's the child that uh, struggles that, that you end up uh, spending a lot of time on. It is available on DVD if you look hard enough. I actually saw it in New York. I wanted to contribute to the North American box office for that film, and I loved it. Thank you. Thank it, you. It was an attempt to start a new dance craze. Do you think that dance craze caught on? I'm still trying. Uh, in the TV series I'm doing for Amazon, we have a scene where they dance the sambola. <laughs> I'm still plugging away at getting the sambola to be discovered. Is it true that Lena Dunham auditioned for the film? Yes, she was very keen to be in the film. She um, un- until she wasn't. <laughs> so she uh, she auditioned, and it's really actually very heartening because she's a very good um, comic actress. And I was in a series of auditions in New York where everything was sounding terrible from the script, and um, she auditioned for an improbable part, but but um, but but read really well and made it really. Um, really seem um, funny and uh, and she was very keen on the script at that point and so it was good getting that kind of positive feedback then but then she was already working on her tv show when we came to shoot so she wasn't in it finally it was a small role she had in the film super small role and we had a wonderful actress who who filled in for her alia shalkat do you ever imagine a life for your characters outside their films do you at least know what happened to them after the the end of the story in the film Sometimes, but but not that much. I mean, I do have a plan for continuing the Sir James Martin character uh, from this film. He's a really funny character. It reminds me of, in, in the Hitchcock film, um, The Lady Vanishes. He has the two fellows who are obsessed with cricket. Yeah. Quite funny uh, characters. And, and those characters continued in other films. I'd sort of like to continue something with Sir James Martin. I, I have another project at that time that he could sort of walk into the way they do in those TV shows now where the detectives from one police show come into another police show. <laughs> and we could do the same thing with Mr. James Martin. He's going to shift from agriculture to property development. <laughs> Speaking of property development, where would Donald Trump fit into the metropolitan milieu, do you think? Oh, we've gotten a lot of, of mileage out of that because everyone says it's Rick von Sloniker. 
and definitely his, his children, his, his sons really do like, look like Rick von Sloniker. So, uh, Rick von Sloniker was a baron, and Donald Trump has a son called Baron. There and, might be a link there. Exactly. I think he really is Rick von Sloniker character. You've made five films. I think all of them wonderful. And you're now working on a TV show. I say five and a third. Five and a I third? Five and a third, yeah. I count the pilot as a third of them. Okay. So tell me about that. This is the series you're working on for Amazon? Yes. Um, it's hard to talk about in the sense that I have permission to do six more episodes and it's going off in a kind of a new direction. So um, we'll use some of the same actors and characters, but the, the sort of plot will, will go farther afield. It won't just be a Paris uh, sentimental story. You made Metropolitan. This one's called Cosmopolitans, I think. Yes. And it will be about yes. expats in Paris. Yeah. I mean, we, have, we had one pilot we did that... Um, a lot of us like a lot, but I needed to, you know, show them where it was going to go. And for me, it's much better actually writing the scripts than just doing one of those outline summaries, which they call sacrilegiously mini Bibles. Well, we look forward to that on Amazon, and people should go and see Love and Friendship. A lot of people would think, oh, it's a women's film, it's a period film. What is in it for men? Comedy. I think it's a comedy, and I, I think, you know, this is particularly the Jane Austen story that guys will like, and it's what I try to sort of talk to the distributors about, not to market it as sort of chick lit yeah. or something like that, because, I mean, Jane Austen originally was championed by men, by the Prince Regent, by Sir Walter Scott, and this idea that it's just tied with pink ribbons and it's about weddings is, is, is nonsense, and um, guys will like this film very much, so I encourage them to go and, and not just leave it to the distaff side. And they've got Kate Beckinsale in it as well. Yeah, she looks pretty good. <laughs> Yeah, there, there are a lot of uh, attractive uh, performers here, including your Xavier Samuel, who Indeed. saved us on the romantic leading man side. Really? He stepped in at the last minute? No, not in that sense. It's just that it's impossible to find good romantic leading men uh, for the films today. If you want to hire a drug lord or, or a young criminal, there are a lot of those actors, but there are very few uh, 18th century uh, romantic leading men who really can pull it off the way Xavier did. There aren't too many 21st century. It's all Australians, it seems, at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bad time. I and mean, Woody Allen was talking why he, he, he can't find American actors to play these parts. And uh, I really struggled to find Adam Brody for um, Damsels in Distress and, uh, and, and now in Cosmopolitans. I mean, there, there are not many guys who can do this kind of film. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. I love your movies. Thank you so much for what you've done. And I look forward to the, the Cosmopolitans as well. Whit Stillman, thank you so much. Thanks very much. And that is Whit Stillman. His latest movie is Love and Friendship.